Please pray with me. Our blessed Lord, we come tonight in the name which is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord. And we come because we are a needy people. We come because we need you and your grace upon us. And as we come, we pray that you will bless your word to our hearts so that we not only hear words, but that your Holy Spirit will apply the words to our lives in practical and wonderful ways. To this end, we lift up our praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The night was very cold. Not only that, but the heavens themselves were closed off from the earth because it looked like there was going to be a cold rainstorm. The city of Monterey, California had never seen such darkness as it saw on that night. A mother and two little boys were wending their way up the familiar hill from grandmother's house to their own home about a quarter mile away. Because of the cold, the little boys' teeth were chattering, and the mother wrapped her large coat around her boys, and they walked in the inky darkness of that night. Not only was it dark and cold, but the boys were very much afraid. And mother was afraid also. The mother and her sons uh, wended their way slowly because nothing could be seen and they had to use the braille method, kind of feeling their way along as they went, ascended that hill to their home. You see, the date was December 7th, 1941. I was one of those boys. I was 10 years old at the time. And I must tell you, I was terrified. The Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor early that day. The news reports which were coming over the radio to us were to the effect that we cannot tell anything for certain, but it is possible that Japanese planes are overflying the Monterey Peninsula. Now, you may be thinking, well, why would they bother overflying the Monterey Peninsula? The answer is that Fort Ord was right across the bay. Already in 1941, there were soldiers in training at Fort Ord. But what the Japanese did not know and what we did not know until years later was that many of them were training with wooden rifles because America had not yet get into the pattern of producing war goods. And so in order to train them, they used wooden rifles and uh, wooden bayonets. I know what it means to be fearful. You know what it means to be fearful in the cold and with the threat of rain. The person we read about tonight 
may not have been facing rain, but he was facing terror. His city was surrounded and about to be under siege by an alien power. And this power seemed to be all powerful and invincible. King Hezekiah, I'm sure, knew what it was to have the icy fingers of fear wrapped around his heart. The enemy seemed so powerful. And his defenses seemed so weak because all of the fortified cities within Judah had been conquered by this merciless Assyrian army. Sennacherib and his armies were at the very gates of Jerusalem. Now this man, Hezekiah, had a very interesting life. He was the son of Ahaz, King Ahaz of Judah. Now please don't uh, misunderstand and uh, think that he is Ahab who had uh, a wicked woman as his wife named Jezebel. That's a different person altogether. That was the northern kingdom, Israel. We're talking now about the southern kingdom and talking about Ahaz, who was the king. He was an extremely wicked man. And I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. The scripture says that he caused his sons to go through the fire. You know what that means? Human sacrifice. He, in order to show his devotion to the idols that he set up and worshipped, he was willing to offer his own sons in the fires in order to show his devotion to the particular idols. He set up worship places on the hills and under trees, and uh, they had statues and all kinds of things for people to worship and burn incense in front of. He allowed the temple to go into disrepair. In fact, he didn't pay much attention to the temple. As is often the case with religious people, they go through the motions of doing that which is right, but their hearts are far from what they're doing. So I suppose that Ahaz went through on special days the motions of worshiping Yahweh, the true God. But his heart was far from Yahweh. He had a son, several sons, obviously, and we're talking about his son, Hezekiah. I've always wondered how it is that uh, an evil man can produce a righteous son. Usually it goes the other way. The righteous man produces an evil son, which was to be the case with Hezekiah's own son, Manasseh, one of the greatest tyrants in the history of Judah. You talk about bad and evil. His name was Manasseh. 
But this man Ahaz, this king, this wicked, evil man, had a wonderful son. And how does that happen? Probably, and this is speculation, but from what we know of ancient times, probably uh, there was a nanny or someone who took care of the king's children. And perhaps Abi herself took care of the king's children. Uh, that was king, the king's wife. Uh, we don't know. But somehow this man was informed about the things of Yahweh. And upon his father's decease, which came none too soon, <laughs> Hezekiah became the king of Judah. He was 25 years old and he reigned for 29 years. And he was a righteous king. The scripture says he did right in the sight of the Lord. And it is said of him that not only did he do right, but there was none before him who was greater and none that followed him who was greater than Hezekiah. And in his righteousness and dedication to the Lord. So an evil father somehow produced a righteous son. I have a very close friend whose father was a professional gambler. Uh, he was also a periodic drunk. Uh, he would not drink every day, but uh, he would drink about once or twice a month, and he would drink himself into a stupor, and then after a couple days of binge drinking, he would sober up, wash up, and go back to his gambling. He worked for the syndicate. In other words, uh, an offshoot of the mafia. And yet this man produced a righteous son. The son uh, was not under the influence of his father very much, probably just as Hezekiah was not under the influence of his father. So this uh, gambler, this uh, unrighteous man, uh, initially his son was following in his footsteps and he was going to be just like dad. He began uh, drinking heavily uh, chasing, doing all the things that people in the world and outside of Christ do. But then uh, the Lord found him, and he found the Lord, and his conversion was full and complete and glorious. And eventually he went into the Christian ministry, and there's more good news. I've got to share it with you. His father became a believer, and... In his latter years, he went around to churches, and he would demonstrate his skills as a gambler. He was an expert with dice. And so he would tell the congregation, you go to Las Vegas, you think you can beat the system? Let me show you a few things. And he would dazzle them with the things that he could do with a pair of dice. And he said, now, if you think you're going to win, you are dead wrong. The house always wins. 
He said, the best way to lose your money is to go and think that you're going to win. This man became a very effective speaker for God, having left his former life. You know, when God converts someone, he converts them completely. Old things pass away, and behold, all things become new. And so it was with my friend and with his sinful father who became a righteous man of God. Hezekiah was a righteous man. But now Hezekiah faced a great, great problem in his life. Surrounding his city were enemy forces. And what was he to do? What would the king do? We notice that Hezekiah did four things. First thing, he humbled himself before the Lord. It's been my experience in life that if we're going to make any kind of spiritual progress whatsoever, we need to humble ourselves, as we heard this morning, before the Lord. The Lord cannot and does not use a hardy soul for very long. Hezekiah, surrounded by problems, in dread of tomorrow, and shaking because of the terror that surrounded him, first of all, humbled himself before the Lord. Got problems? <laughs> Humble yourself before the Lord. The second thing he did was go to the house of the Lord. Now, I spent a number of years in the ministry, and I've actually had people tell me uh, that they, I wouldn't see them in church, and I would find out that there was a problem. I would visit them, and they would tell me sometimes something like this. Well, uh, we're having such problems right now that we just are embarrassed to go to church. Dear friends, when you're in trouble, the Lord is the one you should seek, and I should seek. The house of the Lord should not be ignored. It should be one of the things that we have recourse to when we are in trouble. Third thing he did, he sought the word of God. Now, in those days, the Bible was not written, of course. Some of it, part of the Old Testament was, but certainly not the rest of it. And so the word of God came through living people called prophets. And Isaiah was the prophet of Hezekiah's time. And so he sought a word from God through the prophet Isaiah. That was the third thing he did. And then the fourth thing, and so very, very important, he prayed. Now, if you haven't already been through some great emotional turmoil, some great problem, 
Uh, maybe it really wasn't so great, but you considered it great. And if it's great to you, then it was a great problem. Uh, what do you do in times like that? Well, I've known a lot of people that when they get in trouble and they are facing some great problem, they panic. And I want to tell you that in Hezekiah's time, there was a lot of panic in Jerusalem. How can you blame the people, surrounded as they were by enemies, who threatened their very existence? The kings of the Assyrians sent an emissary to stand before the walls of Jerusalem and yell out to the people, you don't stand a chance. Look what has happened to all the enemies of Assyria. Where are they now? All of them had gods. Where are their gods? We took them and burned them all and destroyed them. Do you really think that Yahweh is going to protect you? Yahweh cannot even be seen. You don't even have an image of Yahweh, and you expect him to protect you. Go and tell your king that resistance is futile. We will conquer Jerusalem the same as we have conquered all the rest of your fortified cities. And so he stood before the walls of Jerusalem and he hurled these threats against not only Hezekiah, not only the people of Jerusalem, but against Yahweh himself. You may get away with a lot of things in life, but I'll tell you this, you do not get away with threatening God, our God and Lord Yahweh. There is a great and terrible price to be paid for those that have tried in the past. I remember many years ago now, it was uh, when uh, Greg and Pastor Benji were little boys. <laughs> <laughs> the Six-Day War between the Arab states, mainly Syria, Egypt, and a couple of others took part in that war also, but it was mainly Egypt and Syria. And uh, they had huge armies, battle-tested veterans, tanks, and the finest airplanes in the world at that time because they were buying their planes, MiGs from Russia. And I will never forget what happened during the Six-Day War. The Israeli Air Force, which was much smaller than the combined air forces of its Arab antagonists, Arab enemies, uh, nevertheless staged a daring raid on Cairo and the aerodromes surrounding Cairo. And this is what happened. The Egyptians had planned very carefully for their war against Israel. Uh, they had placed their planes in very secure pads 
protected on all sides and they had camouflaged them very well. And to further confuse the Israelis, they thought, they had put dummy planes in some of the places and real aircraft in others. The Israeli Air Force went in. And even the Israelis themselves were surprised by the result. Virtually none of the fake planes were hit, but just about all of those Arab planes, uh, Egyptian planes on the ground were destroyed. Now, how did that happen? You say, well, the Israelis had great pilots. Yes, they had very good pilots. They were trained in the United States, uh, out at George Air Force Base, as a matter of fact. But it is not the training, it is not the pilots. The Israelis themselves said, some of them who had no belief, as many of them have no belief today, they said, this is enough to make one believe in the hand of God. Well, God is able in our circumstances. And I don't know if you've had any really great problems in your life. I assume that you have. And if you have not, problems are coming. They are endemic to the, what man is and what he experiences in life. So if you haven't had any problems, be assured you are going to have some. And the question is, what do you do with your problems when you have them? When God's hand is in it, we can rest secure, not that everything is going to be safe and wonderful the way we would like it to be, but we can rest assured that he is going to be with us if we are his people and we are depending upon him. So what did the king do? He prayed. And I suppose if there is one thing I would like you to take home tonight, it is from Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 21. And these are the words. Because you prayed to me, this is God talking through the prophet, because you prayed to me, I am going to do thus and thus. And so the Lord says to Hezekiah, you need not fear. Well, I will tell you, if I heard the voice of the prophet and I saw all the thousands of enemies surrounding my city, I would still be scared. Now say, well, you don't have much faith. That may be, but I would be frightened just as I was on December 7th, 1941. I'll never forget it. I was terrified. So the Lord says to reassure Hezekiah, you have prayed to me and I have heard you. And therefore, this is what I am going to do. First of all, the king of Assyria is not going to enter the city. Don't worry about that. He's not coming in. He's going to hear a rumor, and the rumor will be such that he will 
go back to his own country by the way he came, and he will never enter Jerusalem. And when he gets back into his own country, he will be killed by the sword. You see all those troops out there surrounding the city, Hezekiah? Don't worry. I'm going to take care of them also. Now, friends, this is where I stumble. If I saw all those troops surrounding our city, I would be scared, and so would you. And if Hezekiah had some little flare-ups of doubt, perhaps major flare-ups of doubt, who can blame him? And then the Lord went on to say, the Assyrians are not even going to raise a mound, a siege mound against the city. You know, they would build up mounds and then from the top of the mound they would be able to throw their spears and shoot their arrows into the city. Moreover, the Assyrians will not fire one arrow into the city. 180,000 troops, 85,000 troops out there, and they're not going to be able to fire one arrow into the city? That was God's promise. Now, does God fulfill his promises? Of course he does. Now I have a question for you. When you face a crisis in life, what is the first step you take? Your first recourse ought to be, and my first recourse ought to be, to God. Let's say you get some bad news from the doctor. You're diagnosed with some bad news. I have been there. Some of you have been there. Uh, what do we do? Well, we immediately, the first impulse is to make an appointment with the doctor, and he will see you in two or three or however weeks, and you'll wait an hour and a half in his office before you get in to talk to him. But uh, that's the first recourse. Whatever your problem, the first recourse in your life ought to be God. Now, I don't say this with anything other than experience from my own life. When you put God first, then you can expect to hear from him. When I was diagnosed, uh, the first thing I did was to call for a meeting of the elders and have them do what God's word says to do. And I've, I've read this to several people. Let me read it for you. James chapter 5, verse 14. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil and the, in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Pretty clear. Uh, I've talked to many people about this, and, and they all say, well, you know, I, I feel so embarrassed to go before the 
elders of the church, as though the elders of the church were some kind of super-Christians. They are not. Elders, uh, sorry to tell you this, but you're not. <laughs> I was a presiding elder for many years. I'm not a super-Christian. I'm a sinner the same as all of us are. I have strengths and I have many weaknesses. If you don't believe that I have weaknesses, Marilyn is available to talk to you after the service. <laughs> of course, we all do. Elders are not chosen because they are super Christians. They are chosen because they are available and have a reputation of being men of God and praise the Lord for them. The first recourse ought to be to humble yourself as Hezekiah did. Forget about the embarrassment. You're going to be embarrassed somewhere along life's path anyway. Forget about that. And go to the elders of the church if you have a disease. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not against doctors. I'm not telling you always go to the elders and let them pray and then forget about it. No, because doctors are a part of God's plan sometimes to make us well. And the same with the other professions. We don't just push them aside because we have prayed to God. We pray to God first. He is our first recourse. And in my years of ministry, it was very disappointing to see that very seldom in the congregations that I served was God the first recourse. Uh, he came along somewhere down the line. When things got really desperate, you know, when there's no other way, then we say, oh Lord, please help. Wouldn't it be better to go to him in the first place and say, Lord, this is where I am. Please help me. My own story, very quickly, we went into radiation and chemo. And uh, the radiologist said to us after two or three weeks, he said, I, I really want to tell you something to encourage you. He said, I have never in 20 years of practice seen a tumor disappear as quickly as this is disappearing. Marilyn, my first wife, <laughs> popped up and she said, well, of course, people all over the United States have been praying for him. The doctor said, well, I believe that prayer helps. No, it's the other way around. God does the healing. The doctors help sometimes. I'm not against professionalism, I'm not against doctors, but what I'm saying to you is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician, the great healer, the great counselor, ought to be our first recourse, not somewhere way down the line. But because of our sinful hearts, it is hard to repent, it is hard to become humble before the Lord or before anybody else for that matter. It is hard to submit ourselves to others for their prayers. We want to say, Lord, I can do it all myself. No, you can't. No, you can't. 
So make the Lord your first recourse. Now when Hezekiah heard these words, I don't know what he thought. Uh, I know what I would have thought. I would, would have said, this is impossible, except if a miracle occurs. What did we hear this morning? <laughs> it takes a miracle to unite a church. And it takes a second miracle to keep the unity of the faith among brethren. Truer words were never spoken. So, Hezekiah had to learn that by faith and by miracle, God was going to answer. So what happened? They went to bed that night under great threat. They woke up in the morning and there was not a soldier of the Assyrian army left standing. 185,000 men died in one night. How did that happen? I don't know. I'm going to ask the Lord that someday. I don't know how he did it. Some have said, well, it was a great uh, cataclysm and uh, they died in the cataclysm, whatever that was. Uh, or it was a fast-moving disease and it took 185,000 men in one night. In the Civil War, the war between the states, the combined casualties, the people, the men killed in battle, were between 700,000 and 850,000 men. That's an awful lot of men, but that battle between the states went on for several years. We're talking, friends, about one night, one night. 185,000 people, soldiers of an alien army, are destroyed in the field. Wow, I would have liked to have been there. Imagine waking up to that to see the promises of God fulfilled right before your eyes. But you know, the Israelites had a history of seeing wonderful miracles performed in their very midst. But our faith only lasts one generation. You can't pass it on to your kids. You can try to raise them in the right way, but they have to find the things of the Lord for themselves. So our faith is only one generation, and then the next generation has to make up its mind. And this is what has happened in our country, a country of faith, a country of patriotism, a country where the name of Jesus and God was honored even by those who did not profess to believe in him, has within a very short time, a few generations, turned into a rabble that tramples the flag underfoot that curses the name of the Lord instead of praising the name of the Lord, and who do all kinds of things that they don't even know the reason for the doing that they are performing. We are in deep trouble. 
Seems to me that this is the time in history when God's people ought to be praying and trusting in him to bring us out of this darkness and terror which is swiftly encompassing the country. Now, I know that there are those voices that say, well, um, you know, we don't, we don't want to offend anybody. And uh, uh, we, there are two sides to every story. Yeah, I know all of that, and it is bunk. There is truth, and then there is error. The truth is inscribed in God's word. That's where we find the truth. It is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. And we who are of the faith ought to be on our knees praying for our president, our nation, and for the young people of this nation who have by and large lost their way. You see, their parents, for one thing, no longer honor the Lord's Day. They honor it when it's convenient, but by golly, if a guest is in town, uh, someone from out of town can't be bothered with church, we've got to entertain the guest. Where did you ever get that idea? God says that we should be on, in his house on his day, period. That's very clear. The Sabbath day is sacred in Scripture. Now, I know that the Sabbath was on Saturday, but the Lord's Day is Sunday. That's when we celebrate our Sabbath of rest. On our way to church every Sunday, right up here we see a big green field, and we see kids out there, 40, 50, 60 kids, and they're chasing around ball all around the field, and their parents are there in their cars, and they're clapping and cheering, and all of that is grand except for one thing. They're keeping them out of church, and it's the Lord's Day. When we are told that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, what does that mean? Does that mean we're not to forsake the, our, the assembling of ourselves together except when it's inconvenient? I don't think so. Don't think so. The easiest thing that I have ever done as a Christian the easiest, is to obey the Lord once a week and be in his house. That doesn't mean that I've always had a pure and, and a wonderful heart about being in the Lord's house. Sometimes I don't feel like going to the Lord's house. And in this day and age, people live by their feelings more than they do by the word and express commandments of God. So on the Lord's day, we ought to be in the Lord's house. Now, if you tell me that you're not there because uh, you have visitors, I still love you, but I want to tell you you're wrong. You're not doing your visitors any good. You're not doing yourself any good, and you're certainly not doing any good for the young people that are watching your actions very, very carefully so that they can pattern their lives on your actions. Now, you're all here tonight, so it doesn't apply to you. In conclusion, Hezekiah and the people of his day saw a great miracle.
if we are going to get out of the quagmire that we now find ourselves in, in the nation and in the church as well, we're going to have to ask God for a great miracle because it's not going to happen otherwise. You can invest in programs, you can invest in great preaching, you can invest in all kinds of things, but there is no substitute for the intervention of God in the affairs of his church and his people. Another time I will tell you some stories about how God has intervened in various times and various places and various churches and brought miracle about. Now I know that you are not going to repent. You're not going to pray. You're not going to humble yourself before God if you don't know him. And I'm very, very sure that not everyone in our church knows Jesus in a personal way. They know about him. Uh, they know that he was good. They know that it feels comfortable when they're in the house of the Lord, but they do not know him in a personal way. I have known people like that. And suddenly the Holy Spirit, and this is where a miracle comes in, he enters in and he regenerates their hearts so that they can believe unto salvation. And they come to know Jesus and they say, how could I have ever been so blind? So it is possible, dear friends, and you are my friends, that you're here tonight. And you've been in church all these years, perhaps, Maybe you've even served on the board. Maybe you were in the choir. Maybe you've been uh, faithful in giving to the church. That's good. Doesn't save anybody, but it's good. I encourage you to do it because God encouraged us to, to, to do it. But you've been doing all of these good things and you're in favor of the church. You're not against the church, but you do not know Jesus personally. Am I talking to anybody here tonight? Now you know what it means to know another person personally because we all know other people personally. Do you know Jesus like that? Is he a friend that walks and talks with you day by day? Or is he a concept, a, a nice concept that's way out there somewhere. If you're here without Jesus tonight in your heart and in your life, I don't care about your age, I don't care about your service to the church, your service anyplace else, I want you to find him tonight. So I'm going to ask that you humble yourself. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Now as we sing it, if the Lord is speaking to your heart, I would love to speak to you personally, and I'm going to stand right down here, and as I do so, I would like you to have the courage to stand up and to come forward and say, I really want to know this Jesus in a personal way, the way you're talking about. Will you do that?